Hello, Renewal friends. I am here at home recording the sermon that I preached this last Sunday at Outdoor Church. I had troubleshot the equipment. I had everything set up to record. It was going to be golden. And then when it came time to preach, I forgot to press the start button on the recording. So here I am attempting to recreate your Sunday morning experience from the comfort of my home office. This week's message is a continuation of our series on lessons from the early church. Uh, this week, I want to look at the foundation of the church, what we think of when we think of what the church is built on. Uh, this entire series has been an acknowledgement on our part that we are pretty far removed from the cultural context and the worldview of our first century Christian brothers and sisters. And uh, often when we think of a, a foundation of a church or what is church doctrine built on or, or uh, you know, what is it that, that the church is built up off of, uh, I think in many ways in our culture we tend to think of the scriptures. We think of the Bible. Now, of course, the problem with that, a problem that's been highlighted in this series, is that so often when we read our Bibles, our understanding and, and the application of what we read is largely governed by our modern worldview. You know, if we read something that offends our modern mindset, uh, say a, a verse telling slaves to obey their masters, uh, right away we, we filter that through our modern mindset and we're tempted to maybe skip over it, or, or maybe it becomes ammunition for people who are seeking to undermine the credibility of scriptures. If we read mention of a sinful behavior that hits a little too close to home, so often we don't try to get into the mindset of those who wrote the words. We don't try to come up with reasons for us to uh, embrace this uh, description, but we typically will use modern logic to kind of explain it away or just skip over it. Uh, for example, I was reading this week out of the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 18, the Apostle Paul writes that, I've told you before, and now I'm saying it again, even with tears. You imagine the Apostle Paul writing this with tears in his eyes. He says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul's heart is broken over this. Many are living as enemies to this cross. Uh, he says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their hands are set on earthly things. And I and in my modern mindset, right away, I want to do a couple of things. So, I mean, first off, I just want to other the them, right? Who are these people living as enemies of God? Well, they're certainly not me. Uh, I've, I've othered them. Uh, whoever they are, they are enemies of the cross. Yeah, they're probably atheists and, and Buddhists, am I right? I mean, their end is destruction. These are the people who are enemies of God. The next line says their God is their belly. And initially I'm thinking, yeah, those gluttons, their God is their appetites. How dare people live for just the material things that they hunger for? But in that moment, I'm, I'm stopped as I'm reading. And the question pops into my mind, how can anyone live in modern America today and not live for their bellies. I mean, every day I'm bombarded. I know you are too, every day, bombarded with messages of if, if I buy this, my life is going to be better. And I believe that materialist gospel. At times I preach that gospel. I mean, the other day I was telling someone how great life is with a hot tub. You know, last winter we bought a hot tub and uh, we've, we've been enjoying it. We bought something and it... it <laughs> Lo and behold, it brought us some happiness. You know, Lord knows I love ice cream, and, and, and I'm living at a time, and I'm living in such a way that, you know, I can afford any number of modern 
pleasures and comforts like air conditioning. And I mean, money can't, we say money can't buy happiness, but, uh, but money can buy a lot of things and we can find at times, uh, satisfaction for our appetites, for our fleshly belly. We can find in the things around us. Paul continues saying their glory is their shame. He says those things that they, they revel in are, are actually counter to the things that heaven would celebrate. And as I read that phrase, I'm, I'm beginning to feel a little conflicted and uncomfortable because I think about my celebrations and when, when things that I celebrate might be out of line with kingdom values. And oftentimes many people have felt empowered or their political opinions justified or their sentiments affirmed in recent times by the crumbling of the U.S.-supported Afghan government. For some, it's almost like they're rooting for the Taliban to win just because it proves how terrible the liberals really are and, and how they re- should really never be in charge. Any of you feel the pull for that? I, I know I do. Of course, then on the other side of the, the aisle, we see unfolding before us, there's almost this sense of delight or, or a sense of satisfaction with rising COVID case and death rates in, in more conservative states. It's it's like I told you. Whatever it takes to prove how terrible the conservatives are, uh, we'll celebrate it. And I feel the pull of that, too. I mean, I do. To be honest, I do. I feel these pulls. A little bit of inner celebrating or a little bit of, of you know, self-righteous congratulating of, my, of myself <laughs> when uh, for things that are horrible, a, a broken world where people are suffering, people are dying, uh, people are in pain. Their glory is their shame. He finishes saying their mind is set on earth, earthly things. Again, how how do we live in this world and not have our minds set on earthly things? Which, in my mind, brings up the question: What would Jesus do if he were me? I, I mean, I don't I don't wonder about that question. disabled or the disenfranchised. I mean, in my mind, there's no doubt. Like, if Jesus were here, he would reach out. He would restore. He would heal. He would be compassionate. You know, he would put people in their right minds. But what would he do if he were living in my shoes in my everyday life? You know, news and these questions, how am I supposed to follow his example? With the vaccine, would he have taken the shot? Would he have not taken the COVID shot? I don't, I don't know. You know, the apostles had an incredible advantage when it came to following Jesus. To walk with him, in the, and they got to ask him questions in, in the everyday occurrences. Different things come up. Jesus, what, what do you think of this? Why did you do that? And in many ways, the apostles' testimony about Jesus was the foundation for belief in the early church. Their testimony that Jesus was the Christ, that he proved he was by his resurrection, this was a foundation of the other churches. This is the doctrine the church was built on. The life of Christ was the foundation of the apostles' faith, their opportunity to walk with him and see his life, witness his life. It, it was the foundation of their faith, and then their understanding and testimony about his life became the foundation for the faith of, of really all first-century converts. But here, living today, a couple thousand years later, we don't get to walk step by step with Jesus in the flesh. We don't. So what are we supposed to do? You know, we don't get to write a letter to some apostle who witnessed the totality of Jesus's ministry on earth and say, hey, can you help us out with this problem that we're having? And they write back to us. 
We don't get to see someone or have a conversation with anyone who watched Jesus eat some bread in his glorified body, much less who watched him ascend to heaven. We're, we're cut off from those people. And so if I can't build my path on the foundation of, of a few years of living and traveling and eating and sleeping and firsthand witnessing Jesus in the flesh, what do I build it on? Well, this question had to be answered very early in the Christian faith. You know, as the first generation of Jesus' followers passed on, the foundation, the authority that the church was built on, it was passed on relationally from the apostles to the church fathers. These church fathers were living in a time that was more closely connected to the time and the life of Christ, and these leaders had great insight into who Christ is and how his church would operate. And over time, it was the church fathers who uh, the authority kind of passed on to them from the from the apostles, they're the ones who canonized the scriptures for us. They they embraced the Jewish canon of scripture, and then they decided which writings from the first century church would be viewed by the church as the word of God, as the scriptures. They're the ones who decided what was in our Bible. And the church fathers are responsible for, for much of the theological understanding that we have, for connecting the dots between uh, Jewish faith and this new thing, this relative in their day, this new thing that God was doing. He's still doing new things today, I suppose. Anyhow, their authority and their testimony and their uh, their writings, their their choosing of the scriptures, all of that acted as a foundation for church doctrine for many, many centuries. In fact, for the first fifteen hundred years or so of church history, it was the authority of the apostles passed on through church leadership, uh, you know, through the pope and things like that, the authority of the apostles and the testimony of the apostles, the witness of them, was the foundation for the church. But the trajectory over the last 500 years or so has has shifted that foundation. Around 500 years ago, the, the church leadership was found to be corrupt in many ways, and, and certain people became very tired of corrupt church leaders adding to scriptures with their traditions and with their power-clinging theologies and practices. And so a reformation happened. And the cry of the reformers was, was only scripture. In Latin, they said sola scriptura. And the foundation and authority, at least in the Protestant church, it moved, and in many ways rightly so, but it moved from the testimony and authority of the apostles built on the life of Christ, it became, and the, the tradition of that through the church, and it became built on only Scripture, Scripture alone, by intention. It meant our foundation is just going to be found on the Scriptures. Something that happened out of this is that the church began to split. And they began to split largely because our Scriptures, our interpretation of Scriptures, are so highly subjective. Uh, you know, division had always been a problem for the people of God. You can see Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. But up to this point, uh, for almost 1,500 years of church history, there had really only been one large and, and notable split, the split between Eastern Orthodoxy and, and Western Catholicism. Um, but once the Reformation happened, the next 500 years of church history, well, many good things happened— uh, divisions and splits became just par for the course. They're more common than unity in the church. The church, rather than existing as a counterculture representative of the kingdom, it, it began to move in step with the culture around it, and it, it rapidly moved from a movement of, of unity 
and seeking unity, it rapidly moved on the trajectory that culture around it was on, a trajectory that goes towards individualism and with a high value for self-determination. And again, this is the Western church, so this is just a reflection of European Western culture, individualism and self-determination. And the scriptures certainly make a better foundation than a corrupt clergy. But if you think about what happened in the Reformation for Protestant denominations, really in many ways what had been, a, a, a say, like a three-legged stool, you had the authority of the church, you had the scriptures, uh, the life of Christ bearing witness, tradition, you had this three-legged stool, and it, it, was, <laughs> it was like you took two of them away, and now you've just got a stool standing on a pole. Scripture, only scripture, throw everything out. The problem is, of course, Scripture can be misunderstood. Scripture can be misinterpreted. Especially in the absence of unity in the church, you can end up getting out there really fast because I can make the Scriptures say what I want them to say. One great example is it took the Protestant Americans embarrassingly longer than the Catholics to abolish slavery. It turns out the corrupt leaders of the Catholic Church weren't necessarily as corrupt as their Puritan counterparts when it came to enslaving uh, their brothers and sisters. And you can just see how over time, uh, an improper, or maybe a better way of thinking it is an incomplete foundation, it begins to show everywhere in the house. And we are seeing an unraveling and a crumbling of many things in our Christian faith and in our culture because the foundation is built solely on something that it, it wasn't meant to be built on. The Apostle Paul had some words for the church in Galatia. People in Galatia had never had a chance to walk with Jesus. They're living too far away. Uh, and they hadn't had a chances to uh, meet with any of the other apostles closely. Uh, Paul's the one who traveled there. Uh, but he writes to them in Galatians chapter 3, giving them insight into how to uh, follow Jesus, having never seen him. Um, and Paul could have said a number of things when he writes to the church in Galatia. He could have said, read the writings of Moses. Do your best to obey them. He could have said, a bunch of us are working on some inspired writings. Start collecting them. Put them in a book. Uh, not only is it going to give you an insight, but uh, it's going to be a bestseller someday. You know, he, he could have said that to Galatia. He didn't. He did kind of say that to Timothy. But to Galatians, to the Galatians, he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we follow the Lord? How do we live in the kingdom that God has created? How do we, how do we walk with Jesus? Well, you walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those, who are, those two things are opposed to each other, and they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you will not be under the law. A little further down, he says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then the next thing he says is really interesting. Right after that, in verse 26, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So, point number one he's making, you can't walk with Jesus in the flesh. We have to stay in step with the Spirit of God, uh, the Holy Spirit that God has sent into our hearts. It witnesses to our spirit that we're God's children. It, it gives us guidance. It convicts us of sin and righteousness. And, and, and so walk by the Spirit. But then Paul links from verse 25, where he says, keep in step with the Spirit, to verse 26. He links this idea of walking with the Spirit to also walking together. Let us not become conceited 
Let us not provoke one another or envy one another. Pride, envy, provoking one another, these things are not conducive to keeping in step with the Spirit because these things are not conducive to the unity in the body of Christ. I think in many ways living here today, we tend to not see a link between our obligations to each other, to the family of God, to the church, and our ability to walk with God. We think of it far more individualistically. I can walk with Jesus regardless of how I am toward the family of God. You know, just me and Jesus, and really all I need is my Bible. That's all I need. They did not think this way in the first century church. They didn't think they just needed Jesus and their Bible. They understood how much we needed each other. When faced with division in the church in Corinth, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. So in Corinth, Paul had planted the church, uh, and then he moved on to, to minister in other cities, and others came to, uh, to minister further in the church in Corinth. And as these others came, maybe there's a little different doctrine, maybe there's a little different style, but, but the church begins to be divided. And, and ones in the church are saying, well, I'm with Paul, and others are saying, well, I'm with Apollos, and others are saying, I'm, I'm not with any of them, I'm with Christ. And <laughs> Paul says, look, this church is getting built up, division is happening, there, there is a foundation that was laid here. And others might be building on that foundation, but he says, but each one should build with care. He says, no one can lay any foundation than the one that's already laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation. Everything in the church must be built on the living Christ. But remember, the context for this statement is the apostle combating division. And it's interesting because in just a few verses down, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And if anyone destroys God's temple, so these people who are building and maybe building extra doctrine or, or doing other things, building division in the church, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God is going to destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. It's interesting, Paul likens those who would come into the church in Corinth and stir up division through different doctrines or, or different things. He likens them to those who would be tearing down the temple of God. And certainly for the, the Jewish people in the, in the, in the church in Corinth uh, that he was writing to, this would have been, uh, uh, you know, it, it would have been considered blasphemous to, to go to Jerusalem and start to tear down the temple. It, it, people would have been killed for sure. And yet Paul says that the church is God's temple. You yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in your midst. The foundation is Christ. He's the one in whom the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. And, and this is the gospel, right? That God came and dwelled with humanity. The incarnate word of God, who was the word of God from the beginning, through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made, he clothed himself in flesh and dwelled among us. And the language of, of temple is so important. You know, what what does it conjure to the ancient mind when someone speaks of a temple? To us today, it, it might conjure a lot of things. I know for me, I always think, uh, when I hear temple, I don't think God or Jesus or, or Yahweh, right? Like, I always think, like, Buddhist or Hindu temples. Those are the temples I've seen. I suppose when I was a child, I saw the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City when we drove through there on a vacation once. But, but I don't think of 
the temple as having something to do with Christ. But in the ancient mind, the, the idea of temple, it was the dwelling place of God. In Jerusalem, you had the Holy of Holies in the temple, this place behind the veil where God's Spirit dwelled in such a manifest way. People were afraid if they went back there, they would die in the presence of God. And even the Gentiles had similar concepts, that their gods would inhabit the temples where they are worshipped, and they would come and eat the food of the sacrifices. And, and it was a place where God dwelt with, God's dwelt with people. Paul says to the church, you are the temple. You are the holy of holies where God's presence chooses to dwell. The foundation of our faith is that God came to dwell with men in the in the person of Jesus Christ, to take their guilt and suffering upon him, to bear our shame, to join us in the depth of our fallenness, and we might be joined to him in the fullness of his eternal life. This is the gospel. God is with us. This is the foundation of the church, the life of Christ living in us. And when the church is unified through this one true foundation, we have potential to be all that God has called us to be. But when we try to build on something else, we find ourselves divided. We find ourselves a far cry from who God has called us to be. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes the name of a church betrays uh, what their uh, foundation really is, or, or maybe what they might be tempted to build on, something other than just Christ. So often, uh, you drive past, and, and maybe there's a church that says, like, you know, Bible Truth Church. And you, and you know, these are people who have a very high view of Scripture. Uh, and it's good to have a high view of Scripture. I have a very high view of Scripture. But something happens when our Bible becomes our God, or our Bible becomes the the tool that we use to manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do, or being who we want Him to be. I'm amazed at how many people read the scriptures and come away with a God who looks a lot more like them than a God who looks like the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Of course, other churches, you know, denominations, you have the the Baptist church, um, you have the Lutheran church, and I think Paul would look at some of these names and he would just freak out, right? He'd be like, what? Is Christ divided? I mean, seriously, did Martin Luther die for you? Or are you saved by the ritual of baptism? might look at our church and be like, what the heck is Renewal City supposed to mean anyways? It's, well, come on, Paul. You know, it's, it's branding. It's, it's uh, just trying to get young people to go to church. I don't know. Anyways, Paul's like, what, what, what are you talking about? He would be thrown off by the division in the church. So what are we saying? Well, I'm not saying to throw the Bible out. Anyone who knows me knows I have a high view of Scripture, as I said. We know the scriptures, the Bible, it's not just another book. We know that God uses it to reveal himself. It's inspired. It is, uh, it is uh, preserved by God, and it is used by God as a reliable witness to who he is. I have a lot of confidence in the scriptures. I don't have a lot of confidence in our ability to interpret the scriptures correctly on our own. I think that that so often there's things that we get a, a little backward when we think of the Bible. For example, I don't believe in Jesus because I read the Bible. I, I came to Christ because I was immersed in a spiritual community of faith that loved me and cared for me, a, a spiritual community of faith that embodied the love of God in my life, and through that I said, yeah, 
I believe God is creating a miraculous new family in Jesus Christ, and I want to be a part of it. And so I read the Bible because I believe in Jesus, because I'm a part of his church. And his spirit is the one who illuminates these ancient writings and, and opens my mind, allows them to speak to me today. But Jesus is the foundation. The life of Jesus is the foundation. And sometimes you can, you can say things like that. And in today's culture, there's, that sounds awfully subjective, right? That sounds, oh, you say you do what Jesus tells you to do? Well, good for you. I, I just do what the Bible says. I just read the Bible and I do what it says. But the problem is anyone making that claim is lying to themselves. None of us read the Bible and just do what it says. We all read the Bible and then we do what we think it says. And we're ignorant to the blind spots we might have, the, the interpretation deficiencies we might have, unless the living Spirit of God illuminates them for us or unless the body of Christ around us helps us. Where does objectivity come in following Jesus? How does me and Jesus not just become another path toward my own individualism? What provides a guardrail for my beliefs if I can't rely on myself to find that guardrail in Scripture by myself? The thing that provides that is the church. There were a couple of meetings in the first few centuries of Christendom where the church fathers gathered to define what it meant to be a Christian. They composed these creeds uh, saying essentially, hey, this is, to be a Christian is to believe this list of things. And often, if you go back and you read some of these creeds, there, there are a lot of things strangely absent from the list, and we don't believe the creeds are inspired doctrine like Scripture, but they can be really helpful. Um, it's interesting. You know, most church websites that I read, always, you know, they have uh, what we believe page, right? They have their own creed page. And in their creeds, in a lot of Western churches, uh, they always make sure they say something about the Scriptures. They make sure they say something about we, what, what they believe the Bible is. And those, there's nothing about the Scriptures in any of the ancient creeds. And, and not because the church fathers didn't have a high view of Scripture. Uh, most of those guys knew the Scriptures better than probably most Christians today. They had a very high view um, they just thought differently about what the church was built on and what beliefs were necessary to be a Christian. They believed the church was built on a living Christ and not ancient writings about a living Christ. They believed it was a community of faith, not a book club, or maybe a scroll club back in the day. They believed that we are united by Christ's work in each of our lives, and we are not united by what we read. But you know what they do have in the creeds? They have nothing about the scriptures, but you know what they do have? Something that you rarely see on a church website. In fact, I've never seen it on a church website that I can recollect, and even our own church website. We might need to pay some attention to that, maybe make some changes. The thing they have in the creeds is language-affirming unity in the entire body of Christ. I'll just read the last uh, paragraph from the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed, this is something that would be recited by a Christian. Uh, affirming the beliefs that they believe makes them a Christian. The last paragraph is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We take just a moment to talk about the word Catholic. It, it doesn't mean Catholic like denominational Catholic. It, it, it's a word that means universal, meaning it, it universally applies to all believers. So there is one holy church that universally applies to all believers. All believers, all Christians, 
who come under the apostolic teaching of the apostles, uh, they are a part of this church. This is, the, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means, I believe there is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And I confess there's one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Christ is not divided. Let the, the opinions of our church fathers on what was essential to believe to be a Christian speak to our hearts today. There's one Christ one God is our foundation, and one church. The church fathers believed in their proximity to the apostles that to be a Christian, one had to believe in the unity of the church. And it is that unity in the church that guards us against drifting off of the foundation. I mean, it was the unity in the church that gave us the scriptures in the first place, and it's the unity of the church that gives us something even more than what the scriptures ever could. You see, we might not be able to be, we, we were born at the wrong time to see Jesus living in the flesh. But we were born at the right time to see the body of Christ living out God's kingdom in the flesh every day. I can see Jesus. I can see what he would do if he were living today when I look at the body of Christ. No, we don't get it right every time. We're all fallen human beings, and to some degree, every church and every Christian is dysfunctional in their walk with the Lord. But there are people, and I know some of them, walking in step with the Spirit. And there are portions of their life where I see them and I see Christ, proclaiming the kingdom through their lives. People operating as the hands and feet of Jesus here today, and people who are embodying the kingdom. And so as we close, my prayer for us and for the rest of the church is that we would be those kinds of people. We would be living lives that are submitted to Christ, walking in step with the Spirit, and submitted to each other as we would spend time with the Lord, praying, studying the Scriptures, worshiping Him, listening to the Holy Spirit, and being the people that God has called us to be in this age and time and in unity here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gifts you've given us. We thank you that the church is built on nothing more, nothing less than Jesus Christ, than the life of God uh, enclosed in humanity and living among us. Father, we ask that your life would be the foundation for each of our uh, faiths, that it would be the foundation for each of our walks with you, and that we would not drift from that. We thank you for the, the witness of Scripture, the reliable testimony that it offers. We thank you for uh, the witness of your church. And, and we just, in our own hearts, we would submit ourselves to, uh, to our brothers and sisters again, as your, as your Scriptures in, instruct us to. Um, would you help us to see the unity that you are calling us to and to walk faithfully in it with all those who are called by your name. In Jesus' name, amen.